1: Listener Production Hey, I'm Pro Surfer and mental health advocate Kubi Chapman and this is Good Humans. What is going on, Good Human Podcast Family? Today's episode is a very special one. Chris Walker is a good friend of mine. He's played rugby league at the highest of levels for 150 games in the NRL, six games for the Queensland Maroons with a very successful career. But what really interests me about this chat was his transition after his career, what he went through, the difficulties adapting back to normal life, and then now where he's at and the journey that he's just been on walking from Cairns to the Gold Coast. So dig right into this episode. If you like it, make sure you share it with your friends because I think this has got some great, great insights that are going to help a lot of people who are going through some tough times in life, which we're all going to go through eventually. So yeah, make sure you share this around, tell your friends about it, post it on your Instagram stories, send us a message and let us know if you've enjoyed it. But let's jump straight into it. Welcome to the podcast. Chris Walker, how are you, mate?
0: Yeah, mate, it's it's an honour to be sitting here with you at the back of my place going through it.
1: Yeah, so, how are you feeling, basically? That's the first thing I want to ask you, because it's been a crazy last couple of months for you. How's the body feeling? How's the mind feeling? We will get into it a little bit later, but yeah, how are you feeling? Yeah,
0: not too bad, Coops. I mean, obviously, um, doing a fair journey that I've just been on, um, can take it out of you. Actually, the last couple of days, we did finish on Monday. I've, I've had, um, this is my fourth day off after Monday. Uh, we only walked three or four Ks on Monday, so you could, you could say that was a, a day off, but Mate, the last three days I've been really tired, so it must be just my body telling me that you know I don't have to walk anymore, um, and and just starting to relax and wind down. So you know the last couple of days have been pretty hard. I haven't moved too much far off the couch, <laughs> um, so which, which has been which has been pretty nice, and also nice to see the family.
1: Yeah, I bet. And for those listeners out there who wondering what we're talking about. Chris just walked from Cairns to the Gold Coast to raise money for a bunch of amazing charities, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the podcast. But I want to start. Let's rewind. Where'd you grow up? What was childhood like? And what sort of values did your family instill in you from that young age?
0: Mate, that is a really, really cool question. That is a real cool question, mate, because I, I grew up in a little a little country town called Toowoomba. Um, I, I grew up with... Uh, there was three brothers, so there's four boys in the family. Uh, mum and dad, and um, we we grew up really, really, really basic upbringing. Um, we we never had a TV for 11 years in our in our family, which was possibly one of the best things I've ever experienced because um, my family. I get a little bit emotional actually talking about it because I've got I've got three brothers, two older, one younger, and my connection with my brothers because I never had a TV in my house. Is second to none. We are the closest family that I think I've ever I've ever met, um, or, or or I've ever known. Um, we we look after each other because we had, you know, we grew up in a little bit of property out west of out west of Toowoomba, No TV, so our day consisted of going to school, coming home from school, and during cricket season, playing cricket during during winter. Football season, we would play football. we had, we had horses, we had motorbikes, but we just never had a TV. So when we when we did have to come inside um, to have dinner, it would be around a dinner table every single night. We wouldn't have the TV blaring in the background, um, and yeah, you know, our our nights consisted of doing our homework, having dinner, and then sitting around the dinner table after we'd finished and talking to each other and we'd talk for hours and it was it was awesome it was uh, it was the best upbringing that I've ever that that I could ever imagine a kid could have having no TV and having the um, the having your parents um, engage in you every night and take an interest in you and your schoolwork and you and how you're going mentally and how you're going so yeah my my upbringing was was um, pretty primitive it was there was wasn't much special about it and we we'd sit around and, and talk, and talk all night. And that's why I've got probably the closest relationship with my brothers um, that I've ever known, known with anyone. Um, yeah, so that was my upbringing. And then um, obviously because we didn't have a TV and we'd, we'd play sport and we'd ride horses and ride motorbikes all the time that, you know um, – you know, we'd, we'd invite the the neighborhood kids around and our our footy matches in the backyard would be would consist of having 10 kids sometimes playing footy so um, you know there were some fair other football players that grew up in our neighborhood as well so um, that didn't make it but they made it they made it along a lot, a lot further than they would have than what they would have if they had a TV and and you know I I, I contributed a lot of my NRL um, future. And, and career to not having a TV and even now at my place which I'm filthy about we've got three TVs in the house and and um back back when I was a kid it was mum and dad they'd have to they'd have to threaten us with the strap to get inside um now I've got to threaten my kids with a strap to get outside to play to play so um yeah I, I had a really good upbringing it was it was um you know to, to be able to do that with my brothers and and yeah you know, have my mum and dad taking interest in me every time we sat around the table was was really nice and really loving.
1: Yeah, that sounds so special and it, it's cr- quite funny the parallels. Like you just mentioned three TVs in the house now. I think most people would say that but I do see a lot of parallels with my family. You obviously know my sister really well, Chloe, and my two younger sisters, Olivia and Sophia, and that's something that I find well, kind of growing up found weird. When I'd go to friends' houses and they didn't sit around the dinner table as a family and eat dinner, we'd sit on the couch and I was always like, oh, at the time as a kid I'd be like, oh, that sounds so cool. But then like now I go home, now I don't live at home and I go home and sit around the dinner table and we, every night as a growing up, like seven nights a week my family would sit around the dinner table, yep. TV in the background yep. quite low, home yep. and away in the background. <laughs> <laughs> but, mate, some of my best times ever have been sitting around my dinner table having those conversations. Another thing that I've tried to like implement a lot where I live now is doing like little things of gratitude and like you were saying, talking about what you did during the day and talking about what happened at school with the kids, like yep. there moments that as a kid you don't realise are so important to your development and like you said, it creates that stronger bond with your parents and with your siblings that can really shape the sort of person you are and that's like it sounds like your upbringing with no TV and getting to grow up around such like an outdoors living has shaped the sort of person you are today and yeah, let, let's go into the footy career into Woomba, what was that development stage like? Kind of going into high school and what's that transition moving into the NRL for you? Because you were there from quite a young age.
0: Yeah, that's right, Coops. I um I had the I had the privilege of obviously my older brother Ben. He was four years older than me. Then Shane's two years older than me, and then myself, and then my little brother Luke um, was four years younger than me. So, um, it, it wasn't. I was. I was sort of like. 12 years of age, playing for Queensland. And, yeah, that was our—that the first really Queensland team that you could be picked in was the Queensland under Twelves. Um, and I was lucky enough to have my older brother, Ben. He was 16 and he was playing Australian Schoolboys at a young age, which is, at a 16-year-old kid to play um, Australian Schoolboys Opens, which is virtually under 18s back in those days, was a massive thing. So uh, for my brother to be captain of, that, of the Australian Schoolboys at such a young age, that created a lot of interest around Ben. And then once once the talent scouts found out about Ben or, you know, how well he was going, um, it wasn't wasn't long before they realised that, you know, he had a couple of younger brothers that also could play pretty good football. Shane was 14 at the time. He was playing for Queensland as well. So um, – and then my dad. My dad um, – my dad was playing, my dad was a fair footballer himself. So he was coached by Wayne Bennett when he was young, when he was yeah, when he was at Brothers in Brisbane. Um, dad won the 1980 grand final for Norse when they played South. And back in those days, yeah, you know, that's when the Brisbane comp was, you know, full of Wally Lewis and they had Gene Miles and they had Mel Meninga playing in the Brisbane comp. That's when the Brisbane comp was really, really strong before the Broncos in 1988 came in. But um, to have... To have the interest that we did was was pretty amazing there was there was obviously three of us Luke was too young he was only 8 at the time when they started looking at me when I was 12 and then you know when you start playing queensland 13s 14s and 15s um, yeah there's there's a lot of interest around you because you know to play in those to play those australian teams as well and to be picked in the um, the queensland and australian under 15 merit team you know To have my two older brothers sort of paved the way for me to come through because at 19, Ben was playing first grade for the Broncos and I was playing um, Australian schoolboys under 15. Shane was playing um, Australian schoolboys under 17. Um, So, yeah, the the interest sort of came pretty quick and it came pretty fast. And to have, I think at one stage, we had 12 um, of the 14 NRL clubs after us to sign us as a family and to have those had that sort of interest at su- such a young age. You you know, all you had to do at school was be good and <laughs> unfortunately I wasn't that good. But um yeah, but that that was sort of the the um you yeah, know the, the me being catapulted into playing for the Broncos and then and then four years later, um day born for the Broncos when I was nineteen. So and in the whole year that whole years that um that we've been playing at, rugby league, which I think is about 110 years now since, um, since the start of rugby league in Australia, me and my three brothers, me and my two brothers, Ben and Shane played for the Broncos and we played against another family, the Hughes brothers, and there was three of them and that's never happened before. So that's a, it's a nice little history book moment that I tell my kids about. And, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to be able to say that you've played 13 or 14 years of NRL.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Another little history book one that I'm sure you remember as well and I'm sure you tell the kids about. I was going to mention this a little bit later, but first ever try scorer for the Gold Coast Titans. That's another good one.
0: Yeah, it was. <laughs> I um, that, was, that was a bit of a weird one for me because, um, uh, sorry, in, in, in 2006 I was playing for – I was playing for um, – Melbourne Storm and I had a, a, a I was in a relationship with an actress in a, in uh, in Sydney so our, our relationship fell apart when I went to Melbourne and I was sort of going through some really mental struggles real bad um you know I was I was homesick I didn't have my close family that I grew up with um, with me, like I did at the Broncos, and then when I moved to South, so I still had family there. And but when I went, moved to Melbourne, I was all alone. It was really the first time. And I know that I was twenty six. So I, sh- I probably should have been better at it. But that was my upbringing. My upbringing was always being around my family, always having a family member, you know, live five kilometres from me. Um, you know, and 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 being pretty stable with my life because I could re- I could rely on, you know, having my brothers or my or my parents near me. Um, and then, then in two thousand and six, you know, I, I was football was probably the furthest thing thing away from me from my mind. Um, you know, I was thinking about retiring. I was, I had a relationship breakup with um, my actress girlfriend living in Sydney, and you know, I was sort of going, I was sort of spiralling downhill. And halfway through um, two thousand and six, Craig Bellamy sacked me from Melbourne Storm because, you know, I was out drinking way too much. Um, Footballs wasn't the wasn't the main priority in my life, and I ended up moving back to the Gold Coast, and uh, I ended up moving in with mum and dad at Burleigh, and then yeah, things happened, and then they were talking about um, the Gold Coast Titans being entered into the comp in two thousand and seven, and my manager at the time was Chris Orr, and he had a pretty good relationship with with uh, Michael Searle, the CEO and the owner of of the Gold Coast Titans, and I remember I remember saying to um, Chris or listen, I want to get back into football. i got the passion back because I was back home. I was in a really good mental state, way better than what I had been at the start of 2006. So I had a meeting with um, – he caught up Michael Searle. Michael Searle said, I'm not touching Chris Walker with a six-foot pole. Um, I don't want him anywhere near my club. And me just being persistent, I um, I kept on ringing Surly and he, he wouldn't answer. So then I, then I rocked up – I kept on rocking up at, his, at the Titans headquarters and – just walking, he wouldn't even know that I was coming, and I just wanted to start. That's all. Like I just wanted to start at the Gold Coast Titans. I wanted to prove that I could go back and play NRL again. And um, my, and I think Surly ended up ringing Chris Orr and said, "Listen, if Chris Walker comes to the comes back to the club again looking for me, I'm going to have him arrested." So, so the next day I went back and um and I spoke to his PA and I said, "Listen, I'm not leaving until I see him." Anyway, Surly, um, it was it was a pretty good moment too because. I knew that if I backed myself, then I could start playing first grade again. I could, you know, I had an awful year than the year before in 2006 in Melbourne, and things were falling apart for me personally. Um, but I knew that once I got back to the Gold Coast and I got back into that that happy state of mind, I was I was with family and I was with loved ones and I was and I was with someone that I could talk to. Like I talked to my mum and dad about everything. So, you know, if I had a problem, I could go have a talk to mum and dad and say, "Right, this is what's going on." And that was happening in at the start of 2007 and Surly still wouldn't let me wouldn't let me get a start and, and I just kept on rocking up at his office and asking him to, to give me a start and then he just he finally he finally cracked and he said right over well, I'll, I'll have a meeting with you um come in and see John Cartwright now I I'd I'd been with Cardi cuz Cardi was our assistant coach at Sydney Roosters when I was playing for the Roosters so I had a relationship with him but he knew that I was really bad on the on, on the drink so we all sat down and, and um, you know, Cardi said to me, goes, mate, I, I want to have you at the club because I know you can play good football. Um, it, it's just convincing Michael Searle because he doesn't really know who you are but he's heard a lot about you and heard probably the, the awful stuff. So I just said, well, mate, I'm going to back myself to, to, you know, to force myself into the team. So I went on as a, as a training contract and, and then um, trained really well kept my head down and then um, got the call up for the first game and scored the first try kicked the first goal from the sideline and <laughs> and we end up losing the match against St George and there was about 50, 52,000 at, at Lang Park and I remember that game as the first ever game for the Gold Coast Titans and, and to have that as um, on my resume as well um, is a pretty cool thing because because I, I like the Titans they're, they're a great club and to be able to, to say that I'm the first try scorer ever for the Gold Coast Titans is a pretty cool thing and uh, my young fella Chase is only uh, ten, turning eleven, and you know when you're telling things like that, that's pretty cool for him to him to know.
1: Yeah, it's called bragging rights at school for the young fella for sure. Living up here on the Gold Coast, there's a couple things in that story that I want to unlock that I think are amazing for listeners to, I think, dig a bit deeper into. Number one, from going like you played Origin. You'd had a great career already, seven years in the NRL at 26. You're still in the NRL and it kind of sounds like you almost hit rock bottom. You weren't focused. You didn't care. Yep. Like for 100%. people who are 26 that like almost lose, not lose it all, but lose track of their purpose, it's fine to move home with your parents. It's yep. okay to, not not that it's rock bottom, but you. Re- it sounds like you realized I need to be around the people that I can Perform at my best at, and it's a pretty mature thing to do that. And I'm sure it would have been a hard thing to do from going, probably making yep. loads of money as a professional rugby player at 26 to move back with your parents. But for that to be the kind of stepping stone for you to get back to where you needed to be, and to be the kind of catalyst of that story that
0: just years told. 100% Coops. I mean, it, it, the thing is, what what males do, and I, and I'll only talk on on a male side because obviously I'm male. What what males tend to do um, with them, especially with their mental health, is they don't talk. They don't talk enough, and that's one thing that I do. I, if I've got an issue, I always I can go to my mum, I can go to my dad, I can go to my wife, I can go to my brothers, and I can talk talk to them. I can talk to even friends um, about what's going on in your head, and I do it all the time. Like I, I've you know, I've had businesses that have failed, and a lot, a lot like being sacked from an NRL club. You, you sort of hit rock bottom, so you've got you've got to turn you got to turn to a, a person or, or people that can that can listen to your story. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are. You can be 20, you can be 18, you can be 13, you can be 40. It doesn't matter um, because once once you start the once you start the conversation, that's probably the hardest thing is to start a conversation about your mental health because you want people to think that you're on top of things. And with males especially, and females do it as well. But I'm only can talk from male from a male side of things because I am male. But um, once once you once you open up the dialect, once you start your conversation with a person that you can um, confide in and talk about things that are that are getting you down, it it's a massive weight off your shoulders. I can't believe, um, you know, like I said, I grew up with a family that. When you did have a problem, you could talk about it. You could express your feelings, um, and you weren't judged. Unfortunately, not all people have got that support. But you've got to find—if you don't have that support—you've got to find someone that you can, that you can at least trust um, with telling about your emotions and telling about what your things. And Koop, you're 100% right, mate. 2006. If I hadn't had the support of my family, well, then I don't know where I would have ended up. And and it's like when I. I started a business when I was playing rugby league as, a, as an exit strategy from playing football because you do earn a lot of money and yet once you do finish your playing your football, you gotta find you gotta try and find a job that can supplement your wage that you were playing from football. And it's very hard to find a find a job that pays you over two, three hundred thousand dollars. Um, now it's a lot more because they're getting paid a lot more. Um, and I had an I had an earth moving business that ended up going downhill um, by not being paid and the stress levels that I had in my head was ridiculous. I know that people talk about depression and anxiety and my stress levels caused multiple anxiety attacks per day. I was hitting probably four or five anxiety attacks per day and they, were, they weren't they were just little ones. They were massive anxieties. Um, and then I started getting back into training and, and talking about my issues. And it's amazing how quick. It wasn't, it wasn't overnight. It did take about probably nine to 12 months for me to – go from having four or five anxiety attacks a day to having, you know, one anxiety attack a month. So, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for getting out there and expressing your your feelings and talking to people that that can, um, you know, can sit there and listen to what, what stories you've been through without judging you.
1: Yeah, and, and conversations like this are so important and thank you so much for sharing that because I know people listening get inspired but also get permission to open up because people like you who from the outside looking in at this big, strong footy player, has it all going? But very similar to a conversation I had with Anton Leonard-Brown from the All Blacks, vulnerability is strength and that's how we can overcome and especially people with profile like you and I, it's, I think, so important and so important for us to take responsibility to have these conversations because it does open up for other people listening to this right now 100%. to go, oh, you know what, if these guys can have a conversation about their mental health, maybe I can go and have a conversation with my friends. What I want to chat to you about is... What was your process when it came to like you just said you were really struggling with your earth-moving business, multiple anxiety attacks a day? What was your process to overcome those anxiety attacks and how did you begin to understand how your mind worked to get past that? Oh, so
0: that is – yeah, that's such a good question. Um, once I identified um, – when, when, when I started getting the – when I started having these anxiety attacks and when I was really stressed – I just – I think about someone who did something wrong to me and it might have been 10 years ago and I think, oh, man, and I get really worked up about that situation. Now I identify that if I'm starting to get stressed now, like this, as of today, if I start thinking like that, well, then I know that I've got to go for a run. I know that I've got to go do some exercise. I know that i got to go talk to someone. I know that I've got to get my routine. And routine for me – because when you're playing rugby league, routine is so important for all the players. Routine, routine was – when you're playing football, you get a piece of paper and on that piece of paper, it'd be a two-week schedule. So where you needed to be in the morning for certain days, where you, what time you finished training, what time you got rehab, what time you got games, what time you got mass up, what time you got weights, what time you got fitness. Like everything was laid out in – like time. was itiner- I, Your schedule was laid out to you for two weeks. So you knew – the only thing you had to think about was when, what time you went to bed and what time you needed to eat. So everything was laid out to and – and when I started – when I finished playing football, my routine went out the window. My routine went, my routine went south. Like I didn't, I didn't know what time I was going to be waking up. I'd wake up at ten o'clock. I'd wake up at four o'clock. Um, so once once I got my routine sorted, I was back into um, you know my mental uh, capacity and my mental strength. Um, sort of came back to me when I was playing football because I knew where I needed to be. I knew who I needed to go see. I knew what time a meeting was, was taking place. Um, so identifying identifying those little triggers um, that I had that would that would keep me that would make me stressed or make me not happy. Um, once I identified those, I could then work on them. Then I could become better at, at going right. If I was stressed and I started thinking like that, I needed to exercise. I needed to. Um, and exercise for me was a massive part of me getting myself back into where I needed the alignment that I needed to, to be happy. Mm, It's such
1: a powerful thing routine. And I've spoken about it a few times on this podcast with a good friend of mine, Mitch third and his morning routine is bulletproof. And it's crazy. I know as an athlete as well. It's so nice when you get sent like, all right, from your trainer, you're going to be here at this time. Yep. But when it's when you're the boss, I know the same with my business now, the Good Human Factory, it sounds like you had the same kind of complications with your earth-moving business. You go from, oh, sweet, all the nitty-gritty is done for you to, oh, wait, I need to do all the nitty-gritty. And getting back to a routine, I've been going through this right now myself if I'm not meditating every day, if I'm not doing these little things like you with exercise, understanding what works for you and taking responsibility and doing it when you're feeling down is the biggest factor. And I think that's what a lot of the mental health industry is missing. And a lot of people who are struggling are missing. It's taking responsibility. Like if you don't change anything, nothing's going to change. If you don't take action, you're not going to Change your mindset, and it's it's bad and hard to say that sometimes because there is people that are really struggling that can't get out of bed. Yep. And I wish I had a solution for that. But for people who still have that little bit of energy to maybe go and do something, just doing something little, like you said, whether it be chatting to a mate, whether it yep. be going for a walk, getting outside, there's all these things that do have a positive effect on 100%. Our mental health. But you have to be willing to take a bit of responsibility and do it.
0: It's all—it's all about taking that first step, and 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 they don't need to be that. You don't need to get out of bed and go for go for a run for 42 k's. You don't need to do a marathon. You, all all it might mean is you get out of bed, you drag yourself out of bed because that that if you're in that position because I've been in this position where you don't want to get out of bed, but taking that first step out of your bed and going outside is is probably one of the best steps you can take because. The next day you you'll take you might go for a kilometer walk the next week you might go for a five kilometer walk the next week after that you might do a 10k walk and that's all you need to do for for six months but you've taken that initial step to get yourself out of bed and that's the hardest one it's like when I was on the walk the hardest part of the day was the first two minutes and that was to get myself out of bed to walk 30 kilometers a day
1: one thing that I hear quite often and that I I'm almost going through right now. So I'd love to get a bit of advice from you. That transition out of your professional sporting career into the real world, we've kind of touched on it a little bit when it comes to losing the routine, having to deal with different responsibilities. But what was that transition like for you? Because you kind of lose your identity going from like anyone who sees you is like, oh, he's a footy player, but it's like now you're running an earth-moving business. So what was that transition like for you and how did you manage with that? Because I know there's listeners, whether you're an athlete or whether – you work at Woolworths and you're transitioning to go and go to uni. Everybody, when they change jobs or when they change kind of directions in life, goes through this identity crisis. So, what was your experience like with that?
0: Yeah, another good question, mate. Um, I, I think, I, I think that once I accepted that I wasn't a football player anymore, and you know, when you go to a bar or you go out, people were back, went back. Going to be back slapping you. Walkers on? Yeah, weren't <laughs> we're saying walkers on. They definitely <laughs> weren't saying walkers on. The only time I would hear that is if I went onto a job site um, with a with a with a thirty ton excavator and they were yelling out walkers on as I was unloading the thing. But um, I, I think I think once you accept that uh, uh, one, uh, this is for me. Once I accepted that I wasn't playing football and now football was all my life. Football from. Like I said, from 12 years of age, I knew that I was going to be playing NRL if I didn't have injuries. And luckily enough, I didn't have too many injuries that would keep me out um, from playing football. But once I accepted the fact that I, instead of putting my football boots on, I'd put my steel cap boots on. Once I put, didn't put a jersey on and I put a high-vis shirt on, and once I didn't put my footy shorts on and I put long, long pants on, safety pants, once I accepted that that was my life, I was so much happier. Now that didn't happen straight out. That didn't happen overnight. That didn't. That didn't happen. Um, yeah, you know, the first time I put the high vis on, that happened probably about. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1 dot com about a year after I'd finished retiring because I did have an earth-moving business while I was playing as my exit strategy from playing rugby league. That was my... Because I'd seen... I'd seen my two older brothers, Ben and Shane, earn all this football from playing... earn all this money from playing football. But once they retired, it was like falling off a cliff. It was like they'd just gone off a cliff because that was the last time they were being paid and it was... They weren't getting paid anymore and they didn't have an exit strategy. So they had to go work for my little brother... um, doing um pavers at the back of the house and now now both ben and shane have very successful businesses because they saw that you know what we've got something better to provide than working and laying pavers is not nothing to scoff at but they just thought you know what we'll do this that's when i thought to myself i've got to have an earth moving company as my exit strategy and and accepting the fact that instead of going to training i was going to job sites and at the job sites a year ago, these guys that I was working with were watching me play football. Now I'm working, dig- digging holes with them. So that I had to accept that. I accepted that. I accepted the fact that I'm no longer a football player. I'm now a business owner. I'm now a worker. And instead of four o'clock going home from training, I was going to the pub with these guys. And, they, and then indirectly, me going to the pub with these guys sort of split my routine. And, and then I started falling back with my mental health when I was – Instead of looking after myself, training, and I was, you know, going out with, um, you know, f- future clients and having drinks and dinner and lunch and getting home late, and my my work life balance was through was, you know, so inconsistent because once you get the work life balance correct, you're so much happier, and I didn't have that, and that was the the transition from playing rugby league into 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 the real world, as they say, was was a little bit difficult for the first 12 months. But once I accepted that I was no longer a football player, I was no longer going to be signing autographs and taking selfies with people, but my life was now looking after my family and and concentrating on getting my business from one or two machines. And by the end of it, I had about 35 machines. Um, so it was a, sust- a substantial business. And I, and I learned a lot... Um, I learned a lot from my rugby league days and my professional rugby league days um, and I transitioned that into my business and then that's when I started becoming a little bit happier. But towards the end when, when everything sort of went pear-shaped, um, yeah, what that wasn't wasn't the best part of my life.
1: Yeah. I mean, do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah. It, it, it sounds like if it's probably the hardest part of your life, yeah. it's probably the most interesting and something that most people who are Chris Walker the rugby league player fans might not know about. So this is like the real-life stuff that – I'm very excited to hear about cuz yep. this is stuff that's so super relatable to your average person.
0: Yeah, well like I said, mate, we we had we had 35 machines going and we were flying like we had a really substantial business and yeah you know, li- living comfortably and um but like I said, like my my business would take me from um you know I had machines Locally on the Gold Coast, Brisbane, and then I'd then I have to work. I was working in. Uh, I had machines up with Rio Tinto up at Gladstone, and then out with the mining and the gas and mining out at Ch- and Chinchilla and, and Roma. So, getting back to my work life balance, um, I, I was spending you know, months at a time in 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 uh, Gladstone, and and sometimes weeks at a time in Rockhampton, and in, in, sorry in in Roma and and Chinchilla, and I was very rarely home, and I had. Three young kids, all under the age of four years of age. So, um, you know, Courtney, my wife, does an exceptional job with the family, and she does an exceptional job with the kids and keeping the family going the way she does. And I just had no work-life balance. And then I started because my business was was getting to a fair size. Um, I was lo- relying on other people to come in and work for me and, and run jobs for me, and they weren't as passionate, and and I didn't relay that rugby league way of Getting a team together. Instead, I was so burnt out from running a business for the last six years. After I finished, after I retired, I'd forgotten that you gotta look after your workers, and some of them were dropping the ball on on some jobs that I had, and then I'd lose contracts, and companies weren't paying me. I think we're owed about three and a half million dollars by the time we we end up falling over, um, because I end up going bankrupt four years ago, which I don't mind talking about because it's a part of my life, and. If anyone wants to Google me, it'll probably come up anyway. So, and it was a really difficult part of my life. But what my dad instilled in me when I was a young kid and when I started getting into business, he said, because he owned, him and mum my, my owned businesses when we were growing up. So I knew that sort of side of things when you weren't getting paid. And there's obviously the repercussions of um, you know, sub, subcontractors that, that I employed that I didn't pay. So I spent a lot of my time... Um you know, ringing up subbies to tell them I couldn't be paid, couldn't pay you because I, I had I had millions and millions of dollars owing to me that if I had been paid by these other companies, well then they would have been looked after. And they, they all got it, I rang every single one of them every day to keep them up date with what was going on. Now, what that did for my family life um, sort of galvanized uh, my wife and I, Courtney to become closer because we only had each other to look after each other um through that period it was probably one of the most stressful times of my life it was it was ridiculous we um yeah i didn't know what direction to look in i'd i spent most of my nights uh drinking red wine with courtney to try and numb the pain of of being you know, when you go bankrupt it's like you get hit by a Mack truck and um i was lucky enough to have the support of my family and obviously courtney um, stuck by me, she didn't run for the hills like you hear. Other relations relationships falling over, but I'd wake up. I'd go to bed at 11:30 after finishing three bottles of red wine or five bottles of red wine with Courtney, and because that was the only way that we could sort of manage or escape, or thought we could manage and escape. Um, so I'd go to bed at 11:30. I'd wake up at 12:30 at night. So I'd have an hour of sleep, and I'd just lay there and look at the look at the ceiling every single night. It wasn't, there wasn't a night where I didn't either wake up at 12.30 or 1.30 and lay there till five, six o'clock in the morning and, and think to myself, what the hell has just happened to our life? Because, you know, we were living pretty comfortably. We were, you know, had a really good business and we were, we were moving forward with things, and to have that happen to you—lucky um, the kids weren't old enough like they are now, where they could under, could have understood. So we sort of kept it away from the kids and we kept it between Courtney and I. But there were five nights out of the seven nights I'd roll over and Courtney be crying at two o'clock in the morning because of what's what's just happened to you. And when you work for some of the big companies and you become a number to them, they don't care what you know what. Personal issues you're going through, and they yeah they find a way not to pay. I won't mention who they are because I wouldn't do that. But um, yeah, that was a really really difficult part of my part of my life. And um, it, it was probably a year ago, maybe two years ago, maybe 18 months ago before this pandemic started. Getting back to routine um, because I had no routine. I had I you know I, I wasn't working for three years because I I was just in a in a state. It wasn't depression. It was just, I just couldn't believe it. My my pride, I, my pride had been dented because of what happened. But like I said, I, I'd been proud of the way that I conduct myself with all this, all my subcontractors, and the, and even today I, I talk to, I still talk to fifty percent of them, um, because they were they were so proud that I. Yeah, you know, I didn't run for the hills, turn my phone off and change my number and, and never be seen again. I, you know, I, 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 I took responsibility for what happened and I made sure I kept those, kept those yeah, guys in the loop. maintain that integrity. Yeah. So to have that happen and and then I'd, I'd read somewhere, it might have been on Facebook, that um, my usual time of waking up each morning was 7 o'clock in the morning and getting back to productivity and routine, I started setting me alarm for 5 o'clock, two hours before my – usual time. And that meant that I could either lay in bed while, while it was still dark and still quiet. You could hear the birds in the trees. And I'd lay there from about five o'clock to about quarter to six. And that was my time. And whether it was reading something on the internet, whether it was looking at Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or reading something up on on the web page or, or um, Google or whatever it was, that was my time. So then my mental health, because I started doing that, I started getting myself out of bed at about quarter to six, driving down to Crumlin Beach and going for a walk for forty-five minutes. Come home, pick up a coffee, pick up a coffee for my wife, Courtney, who was in bed still at, the, at that time, and I'd give her a coffee every single morning. And that was my that was my routine. So that that started my mental health. It's amazing when you when you and little do you know that if you change two hours, you get up two hours earlier than what you usually get up, that's an extra month of productivity per year, which is pretty powerful. When you think about it like that, what what people would do to have an extra month per year, and it's so simple. You just wake up two hours before you, you usually wake up. And like meditation, You talk you talk about meditation. I can't, like I've just started doing it. And it is so powerful.
1: Crazy, huh? It's
0: so powerful, man.
1: Yeah, and it's a a funny thing, meditation. So many people go, oh, it's not for me. Like I'm sure you've probably been told about meditation hundreds of times over the last 20 years. Yep. But it's until you give it the time. And I like to use the analogy, people go, I'm not very good at it. It's like, well, if I take you surfing, I could probably take you for 20 surfs before you can even really go across a wave. Yep. It's like saying what what would be the equivalent of going across a wave in meditation, but it might take you 20 times before you even get that 30 seconds of stillness of your thoughts. But we're not willing to do that amount. And coming back to what you are saying with the two hours a day, a new concept that I've come up with with The Good Human Factory, which I'll add you to one of the groups, is I was like, surely we can dedicate 1% of our day to our mental health, one measly percent of our day. It's 14 minutes. Yep. And I was like, so I've started these groups where it's like, Every morning I post a 10-minute guided meditation so it's easy for people to follow. They comment done if they've finished it and then every night you spend four minutes on gratitude. So 1% of your day is 14 minutes. Yep. So 10-minute meditation, four minutes gratitude. I've got 130 people every day doing this now with me just for the fun of it on Instagram because it keeps me accountable because if you have an accountability group, you're 95% more likely to stick to something. Yep. And it's crazy watching these people all write every day and go, oh, Just like a group of people encouraging each other and being in this routine of just like 10 minutes a day meditation, four minutes a day gratitude. Like you said, that two months extra a year or even in this case, spending 1% of your year on your mental health minimum. We we should all be aiming for that minimum. Like, you know I mean? Two hours is great. I try and get up and meditate, do some time reading, like do some self-development stuff because life's moving so fast that self-development is so overlooked and the thing that I speak to kids about in my workshops about meditation is I feel like life's moving so fast that we don't spend enough time sitting still with ourselves to even check in with how we are feeling whereas I look at meditation, if you're sitting there and you've got 10 minutes worth of thoughts then you need to sit there and sort that shit out because if you've yeah. got that going just for the 10 minutes, imagine all day your brain's going like that Yep. and the goal is to start to get that one minute stillness. It's
0: an excuse if you say you can't. Yep. It's an excuse. Like I know that people sit there and watch TV for two or three hours before they go to bed.
1: I want to talk quickly about to finish off because this is probably the most impressive thing I've ever heard somebody do. <laughs> Where did the idea for Chris Walker's Walk of a Lifetime come from? Can you explain that a little bit? And then we'll have a little bit of a chat about the journey.
0: Yeah, it was. It was. Well, I, I was sitting um, talking to one of my mates. My mates. Um, He's about sixty-five. He did. The, he did. He walked fifteen years ago. He walked from Cairns to Redcliffe. Um, and he did it for a great cause. He raised money. He raised two million dollars for um, the hospital at Redcliffe uh, for his walk. And he walked from Cairns to Gold, uh, Cairns to Redcliffe. And he got talking to me about it. And I knew about it because we used to, we play. I've known him for about twenty years, and he, um, we play golf and we talk about it all the time. And it sort of intrigued me. I was like, "That's that's a fair journey to be able to walk from Cairns to Gold, or Cairns to Brisbane or Cairns to Redcliffe. That's a fair journey." And I, he just said to me. Once we got talking about fund my challenge, guys, why don't you do a, a hero challenge and walk from Cairns to Gold Coast? And once <laughs> getting back to my rugby league days and getting back to my competitive edge, um, it, it sort of stuck with me. And then I was talking to the guys at Fund My Challenge. and I said, "Well, this is what I want to do." And I and I just walked in and said to the boys, All "Right, I'm going to walk from Cairns to Gold Coast." Not even without even without even realising what how the the enormity of it. And once once I started it um, in Cairns on the 26th of April, the first three Ks that I did, I thought to myself, how the hell am I going to do this? Oh, and, I, and I thought to myself, I've got, I've got another 70 days of this. I've got another 68 days of this. And again, you come back to that football days of training hard and, and taking out of your comfort zone. And that's what I was taking out of my comfort zone every single day for 71 days along the walk. And um, yeah, that's how that's how it was born. It was born by uh, Ronnie telling me that he, you know, we got talking about his his journey, and it was weird because every single time I asked Ron about the walk, a massive smile was on his face, and I was thinking to myself, why is he smiling? Why, you know, you've just walked eighteen hundred k's or seventeen hundred k's. Why every time I'd ask you about the walk, you'd smile, and it's not until you actually embark on something like what I've just finished um, to to now know why he smiled because being on that journey and and walking that far was probably one of the best things I've ever done in my life. It was the most amazing feeling to to know that I've walked from from one end of the state to the other and I've met some incredible people along the way, real people that – that, you know, obviously with this pandemic over the last 18 months, especially in North Queensland, they don't talk about it. There's no mention of COVID and there's no mention of the doom and gloom. And when I was on the journey, because I was walking for so long per day, I never get never got to sat down, sit down and watch the news. Now, we all know over the last 18 months, news has changed. Um, sometimes it's oh, – well, most of the times it's, it's all negative – the first ten stories of a news bulletin is is doom and gloom. First five stories is all about COVID. Next story next is how we're gonna beat it. And then you know, this could be around for they're saying it could be around forever. Um so so negativity is in your house every single day. Now, being on the walk, you don't watch the news, you don't watch any of the shows that that report about COVID and you're walking into communities and you're walking into these towns that all they want to do is come out and talk to you about the walk and how well you're going and and you know, talk about their achievements and talk about you achieving the end goal and everything in your life is positive. And it wasn't until I got back to Brisbane where I started seeing the news and I started seeing about COVID and and then we've got and then three days before we finished we went into lockdown, so I had to come home and you know, you wake up and you watch the morning shows and they're all it's all doom and gloom and there's hardly any um, positivity and your your mindset just goes from from you know being filled up with negativity negativity to 68 days of my life where I didn't watch the news and it was that your mindset goes into uh, uh, euphoria like you you wake up every morning and the, like i said the first the first 2 minutes of the day was the hardest and then you go right i'm doing this for people who are struggling through Covid, all this. I'm, and That's why I did. It. I did it for to be a, a beacon of hope for people to know that. Yep, you know what Covid is around, but you know if you don't watch it, and you don't be around it. You can't let it defeat you. So that was that was the best part. Of, that was the best part of the of the journey.
1: Yeah, and, and just for the listeners, who are you raising money for? How much do you know? I, I think you'd know now pretty much how much you raised, and like how important is that to you? Knowing that not only was it a crazy experience for you a beacon of hope for people checking in with you live on the walk and also people checking in because i know the news followed it quite a bit but how much does it mean to you knowing that you not didn't raise like a thousand dollars or something that will have an impact but you raised a substantial amount of money and because it's fun through Fund my challenge you know that it's going to charities Yep. Who were going to make use of the money? So who were you raising money for, and how much did you raise?
0: Yeah, I think I think we're at, we're sitting at about two hundred thousand, just just under two hundred thousand from from reports. I don't know the final figure because there's still money coming in, but it's up around the two hundred thousand. I'm ra- I raised money for um, four charities that had seen increases in their causes over the last eighteen months. Beyond Blue had seen a forty two percent rise in mental health. Uh, the um, Alcohol and Drug Foundation there's like a four hundred. uh, increase in in alcohol sales online during during this pandemic, Um, Rise Up, which do – oh, my God, Rise Up. They do amazing work with uh, domestic violence. I got to spend a day with those guys before I left and to see the changes that they have. They've just housed their 1,400th family, so 1,400 families. They've they've relocated. Now, what what their cause is they – they find out that there's a family that's been absolutely decimated by domestic violence. You know, some of the stories that of the houses when they walk in to relocate these families, they don't get to meet the families. All they get is how old the kids are. So they might be to say there's three kids, and there's a 13 year old and there's two and 10 year old and then a seven year old. Then and they know that there's two boys and one girl. So what they do is they find out their favourite colour, their sport. They deck out a house that's just say there's someone in Townsville. It's they're going to move from Townsville to the Gold Coast. They go into the house before the family get there, and they how ha- they deck the house out with new sheets, new beds, new linen, um, microwave kettles. They just deck the house in. So when the ha- when some of these families have an hour to get out of there.
1: To get away from To get away
0: abusive. from it, Abusive. They, they, some, they might have half an hour to get out. So they've got to leave a majority of their personal stuff at their old house to get relocated into a house. Now, rise up, go in, and they do this house within the time it takes to move from Townsville to Brisbane. They've got the house decked out. So when that family who 24 hours prior, um, you know, have had people thrown through the walls and beat up, they're now moving into this new safe house. And you imagine what that does for these young kids, how much hope they'd have because of what Rise Up does. And to be able to raise that much money for Rise Up, I could probably house 10 more families because it costs $5,000 per family. If they get $50,000 out of – so if I split it up between the four um, beneficiaries, then they can house all these people and they can – or they spend about $70,000 at at Storage King on storing – what they need to store their toys, linen, um, you know, kettles, and washers, and TVs, and and all that sort of stuff. So, to be able to do that and be able to um, to walk all that way and create enough awareness for those organisations is yeah is, is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and you can just see the smile on your face talking about it, how much it means to you, and it's such a special thing. It's so awesome to watch that journey happen for you and then to be there for the last little bit of the walk with you a few days ago. It was pretty special to see the community there and then you putting on a good story in the morning talking to you about that. So, mate, this has been such an amazing chat. I've learned some things that I never knew about you, which has been awesome and I'm sure everybody listening has been so inspired by your authenticity and your honesty because I'm sure some of these things aren't easy to talk about and aren't easy to share with the world, but I know there's people that listen that will get a lot out of it, get a lot of inspiration but also get a lot of hope. If yep. somebody is going through bankruptcy right now, just be like, oh, you know what, there is green grass on the other side oh, of the fence. There is light to come up tomorrow morning when I wake up and give other people hope. So I'll give you what's the one last bit of advice you have for someone listening who's going through well, some tough times. Exactly,
0: exactly that, Coops. Um, you know, there's things in my life that I'm not happy about that, that that have happened to me but I can't change it. There's There's no way that I can go back. No one has ever been able to go back and change history. So I don't hide away from the fact that, yes, I've had some good things in my life happen, playing Origin, playing State of Origin, playing NRL, um, having having a successful business, having three beautiful kids and a beautiful wife and having a great family and support. Yes, that's my, my great stuff that I don't want to sit here and talk about those because... Everyone, most people have got that in their life, but they haven't had had the journey that I've had, which is, you know, I've hit highs in rugby league, but I've also hit the lows of lows, being locked up, being kicked out of being sacked by teams. I'm not perfect and I'll never say that I am perfect and I'll never claim that I am. And then having the highs of business, and then having the lows of business so I do have a story to tell and if I don't tell the story well then I'm not being authentic to myself and people real people know when people are authentic people know when they when people are real and they know when people are fake and that's one thing that I tell my kids you can't be fake you can't live a life of a lie and I'll never ever live a life of a lie and you know people ask me If if I'm too honest and if I'm too honest for people and it it hurts people, well, that's not my problem because that's my life. This is my life. I'm not going to shy away from the good things. I'm not going to shy away from the bad things. I'm not going to hide the good things. I'm not going to hide the bad things. And once you – once I I will say this in in conclusion. Once you become happy with yourself and once you don't worry about what other people think of you, because that's what happens and especially with this social media life everyone puts up a everyone puts up a, things in their stories that don't really reflect who they are so they're living they're living behind a lie and and they want people to want people to like them and that's why you have so many likes on on your social media you, you, people want people to like you and that's but i i now this is just me, and it doesn't mightn't fall with everyone. If people don't like me, well, then that's their problem. That's their problem. If people like if people like me, well, then that's great. But I don't live by what people think of me. And once you, once once I've started living by that, and it's only been happening in the last probably three or four years, I'm so happy with myself. And once once you forget about trying to please everyone and trying to get people to like you, um, that's when life really starts.
1: And that's when you get those authentic relationships. 100%. People who don't like you usually don't know you. And if you have people that know you really well that don't like you, then there's probably something that you need to have a look in the mirror and change about yourself anyway. So if it's some people that you respect and can appreciate their criticism of you, then great. But if it's somebody who is social media sending you a shit message, it's like, (laughs) well, you don't know me. And and what you touched on before was social media putting up, it's pretty funny. We put up, and I do it. Like we all do it. We put up kind of the best parts of our life and we people like and think that that's our life but don't know the real authentic side of us. So it's hard when people love the good side of you. It's very hard to love the average parts of yep. all of us if we never show it. So, yeah, I, I love the idea of being authentic and your social media is always great watching you muck around with the kids and just be yourself. It's it's yep. great to watch. So. Anyone listening, make sure you go check out Find My Challenge app on Instagram and Chris Walker. What is your Instagram?
0: I am Chris Walker.
1: I am Chris Walker. Check him out. He's got some amazing stuff on there. And, yeah, the last question I like to ask everybody on this podcast is what does being a good human mean to Chris Walker?
0: Um, Being authentic. Um, You've hit that on the head, just being authentic, being yourself Um, and making sure that, yeah, you look out for people and – I think, I think being a good human is is, I'll probably go on I'll probably go on the first 12 days of my walk and that was walking with a guy by the name of Nate Miles. Nate Miles is a rugby league player. He is he epitomizes the term good human um, because he gives people time and if you give people time and listen to their story and listen to their stories and their life stories, um, that's a that's a very, 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 very good trait to have.
1: Mm-hmm. So important listening. It's a big one and very high on my list. So, mate, thank you so much for this. It's been an amazing chat. Like I said before, I've learned so much about you. A lot of things that I'm going to take from this that are going to help benefit me is every time I hear the word routine, it makes gives myself a little kick up the ass to know that I can always do that little bit more. But, yeah, anyone listening, make sure you give us five stars on the podcast, leave a little comment. If there's anything you want to know about, Chris, I'm sure if you send him a DM or me a DM on Good Humans Podcast, we'll relay it to him and get some answers to you because yeah I'm sure there's some people with some questions about your story that will help a lot and yeah, make sure you share this on your story on Instagram, tell your mates about it because yeah, I think it's a story that will not only inspire and educate people but really give a lot of people hope to know that you can hit rock bottom, bounce back up, hit rock bottom again, bounce back up and that's just life, it's a roller coaster. so yeah, thanks everyone for listening and thanks Chris Walker for jumping on.
0: Thanks Coops, thanks for having me
1: Good Humans was presented by me, Cooper Chapman. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson.
0: Listener. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino
1: from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?